Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soschnick. On this weekly podcast, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. On our podcast, we take a deep dive into the recent college basketball scandal with former Duke University basketball player and ESPN analyst Jay Billis. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi williams And let's start with the Premier League meeting that will end without an agreement on a split of cash. Scott, this is a story you've been working on. Yeah, it seems as if all the European leagues are catching up to the Americans. All the problems that we've had <laughs> seem to be catching up to the European leagues. There's always been harmony. They've shared the revenue. It's been a nice nice situation, whether you finished last or first. You got roughly the same share. Well, now, all of a sudden, the big clubs... You know what they are, Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea. They're getting together and saying, we should get more money from the international because you know what? Americans, when they tune in on NBC, they don't want to see Sunderland. They're not there to see Bournemouth. They're there to see the big clubs. We generate more revenue. We want to keep more. Yeah, it's a similar system. What they're looking for is to some colleges have here in the U.S. in that the conference signs an overall deal, but there might be two schools in the conference that are a lot more high profile. They're the ones that people want to see when they turn on the television and they get a bigger share of the revenue. Um, the question, I guess, for me, and this might be the romantic in me, uh, I wonder how much of this fundamentally changes the Premier League from a competitive standpoint. One of the things I love about the league is that Leicester like, can happen. Exactly. Leicester City can happen. There is, a, there is a, a parody there that we haven't seen in any other European league in a while. Um, and this is chicken and egg, but is that because they're not sharing the revenue? Uh, I'm just curious as to what, what happens if this happens. And I like what the small teams are saying. They all get together. They, they sort of formed a little unit, so they prevented the 14 votes necessary for change. You need 14 votes. They're all saying you need to play somebody. Chelsea can't play Manchester United every week. You know, we're here too. We participate in this league. You need to share equally, is what they're saying. It's going to be very interesting to see how moving forward, as the dollars from these international agreements go higher, very interested to see how hard those big clubs push. Somebody has to be the Cleveland Browns. Somebody has to be the Cleveland Browns. They're on the schedule every week, right? <laughs> next one. Sorry, Cleveland. Well, I love you. Anyway, next topic and this one is a big one. This is going to be probably one of the most powerful ladies in sports. Lorene Powell Job. She's buying into the parent of the basketball's Wizards. Yeah, she's got about $18 billion to invest in this stake, about a 20% stake in Monumental Sports, and that's run by Ted Leonsis. And Ted has a big desire to get Monumental to be an international brand. Right now... Most of what he's done in Monumental is centered in Washington, D.C. You know, he's got, as you mentioned, the Wizards. He's got the Capitals. He's got some esports. He's got an Arena League team. He's got, um, he's got, we said esports. He's got sure. Capital so One Arena. He's too, got right? Capital One Arena, yeah. So he's got a nice array of sports and entertainment properties in Washington, D.C. Now, what can he do in global nature? What can he do to bring Monumental outside the U.S.? And Lorene has a lot of philanthropic things that she's into. She's looking to sports as a vehicle for education, for things like that. It's a pretty powerful tie-up. It's very interesting to see what she's going to do with it. The NBA has slowly built a stable of very powerful female owners. I mean, Jeannie Buss in, in L.A. gets a lot of a lot of publicity. There's Ann, Wal Ann Walton Cronkey in Denver, Gail Miller in Utah, obviously 
Lorraine Powell Jobs is not the minority. No, the the Jordan's wife was the first female owner in D.C. She was the first NBA right. female owner. Right. She owned a piece of it of the Wizards, which is now Ted's team. So Lorraine Powell Jobs is stepping into a league that is very familiar with with high powered females on the ownership side. Uh, I'm curious as to what this means for the future. Is she looking for maybe a, a larger stake in either Monumental or something else down the road? Well, it was pretty clear. Ted remains controlling partner in all this. And as far as I know, and I've talked to Ted a lot throughout the years, he's not looking to get out of sports. He, he loves it. But this is a pretty powerful, influential tie-in. Uh, it's going to be fun to see what they do together. And we've seen before, I mean, buying a minority stake in a team is often kind of the way you get in good with the owners in a league so that when it comes time to buy the full stake in something else, they're familiar with you, they know your businesses, you've been in the meetings before, etc. Should be noted, she did try and buy the LA Clippers before Steve Ballmer. She was part of a group that tried to buy the Clippers, so clearly there's interest. And by the way, in case you're interested, Powell Jobs has a net worth of $17.8 billion. That's according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. It makes her the world's 54th richest person. And let's move now to Alibaba, buying broadcast rights to Slate of the Pac-12 College Sports. Another story you worked on, Scott? Yeah, it's very interesting here. The Pac-12 has, for the last five or six years, tried to boost the brands, not only of the conference, but the individual members. UCLA, USC, Arizona, Oregon, tried to boost the profile of these institutions in Asia and particularly in China. And it's not just about the sports. Sports is about the front ports. It's very interesting how it all ties in because what you're looking to do here is get applicants, folks from China who can go to these institutions and most importantly, Michael Barr, pay full freight, pay full tuition. Keep in mind that that conference includes UCLA and USC and that has a lot of contingent involved with people who are from China, who are studying at UCLA and USC. Absolutely. Eben, you know you know it better than anybody else. College sports, great front porch. Yeah, they're flexing their ge- geographic muscles a little bit as well. They're that close to Asia. They have large amounts of Asian students that come into their universities, and they're taking advantage of that. Our thanks to Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi williams Now let's get to this week's interview with former Duke University basketball player and ESPN analyst Jay Billis about the most recent college basketball scandal. Billis, who is an attorney, joined ESPN in 1995 and is one of the best-known analysts in the game. A four-year starter under Mike Krzyzewski in the 1980s, Billis was only one of two student athletes appointed to the NCAA's Long-Range Planning Committee. Since 1992, he has been an attorney with Moore and Van Allen, where he specializes in commercial litigation. Yeah, well, Michael, we know this one cost Rick Pitino his job already. What we have here is a mixture of boosters, powerful coaches, AAU coaches, and sneaker companies. And somehow the money is being funneled from the sneaker companies to the institutions to these recruits, to one, not only pick which school they're going to, but to wear a particular shoe and then to later on hire a particular agent and or financial advisor. And I mean, Jay Billis has seen this time and time again. And I'm just wondering on this story, Jay, did anything about it surprise you? 
Well, uh, just the, the involvement of the federal government. When you have the United States Attorney's Office of the Southern District, which is as powerful as any U.S. Attorney's Office in the country, and then a two-year FBI investigation, which included uh, cooperating witnesses and wiretaps and the like, uh, that is an unusual happening uh, in almost any industry, let alone let alone college sports. So that's the thing that surprised me. Not, uh, I, I mean, I hate to sound cynical, but the fact that there is money in college sports, that uh, that is not a shock. Yeah, but you wonder why they took notice, right? I mean, the Southern District, and this began probably with Preet Bharara there, they're usually looking at Wall Street. I mean, I know we're talking big money, but this isn't Wall Street. Is it worthy of the investigation? No, but, but the Southern District of New York, the U.S. Attorney's Office there, was in desperate need of a win. And, uh, and that's, that's probably part and parcel why they had the press conference. But this all started, from my understanding, with Wall Street, where they had a uh, uh, an SEC fraud investigation, and uh, someone that they had in their crosshairs uh, led them to this. At least that's the way I understand it. A person named Martin Blazer, uh, who's got uh, connections far and wide. So that's where it started. At least, at least the genesis of it. But it didn't take a genius to figure out that that there was an underground economy in college sports, and that underground economy is a natural and probable consequence of of the NCAA's amateurism rules. Anytime you're in a multi-billion dollar business uh, and you're trying to limit one segment of that business, that being your employees, the players, to expenses only, it's no wonder there's going to be an underground economy that's going to spring up because talent acquisition in any business is really important. And, uh, and you can tell that by how recruiting goes in college. So the idea that you could, you could make money the number one priority, which it is in college sports, but yet the players are going to, to be quote unquote amateur. Uh, it's kind of hard to, hard to fathom that you wouldn't see, you wouldn't see this coming or know that it's happening. They, they, they saw it coming. Uh, they, they knew it was happening, but, uh, but it wasn't something that they would or could stop. Why not just simply take the amateur status controversy away and pay the college athletes? And two, why didn't the NCAA step in in the first place? Well, the NCAA will claim that they couldn't have because they don't have the uh, investigative tools of the federal government, uh, that they don't have subpoena power and they can't compel testimony and uh, and compel document production and the like, which, I mean, I, I guess... There is truth in that. They don't have subpoena power. But I think when, you know, they said it so often, they made it sound like they felt like they deserved it. And uh, there are a whole bunch of industries that are able to police themselves very well without subpoena power. I mean, I'm a lawyer uh, and, and I'm, a, I'm a member of the American Bar Association and uh, we're able to discipline our ranks uh, and we don't have subpoena power either. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's, there's, there, there are no businesses that have that. Uh, the government has that. Um, so they, they weren't able to do it. Now, why won't they pay players? Because um, they, they simply don't want to. Uh, it, they've never they've never felt like they had to. Um, and if I were them, I wouldn't want to either because I'd make more money if I didn't have to share it with others. Uh, but um, I think they've reached a point where I think I think if you want to run an amateur um, sort of an amateur endeavor, uh, that's fine. But you can't you can't sell the players for billions of dollars and then claim it's amateur. I mean, every game's on television. Uh, they sell tickets at these gigantic prices. The universities are using athletics 
not just to generate revenue, which is substantial. They're making you know millions upon millions with uh, uh, with media rights deals, with apparel deals, and the like. But the universities are also using athletics for institutional advancement. And, Jake, quick little story. Years ago, I spoke with Bobby Bowden, former coach at Florida State, and he told me he knew everything had changed when one day the university president showed up at his office on an off day and said, boy, I noticed we had some empty seats at the last game. He said the president had never come into his office before, and all of a sudden he was concerned about empty seats. The game had changed, and he knew I wasn't long for this sport anymore. Yeah, and, and look, you'll have some of the old-time coach say, coaches saying, hey, you know, it's so different now. You know, we didn't get into this for the money. And, you know, they didn't get into it for the money, but they're taking the money. <laughs> they're, not, they're not disappointed about the money. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, I, I believe in making money, but I think what, what's profoundly wrong is the NCAA operates as a cartel. And so they, they price fix labor at, at zero. And really, the players are allowed only their expenses. And what's really sort of maddening about it is the NCAA likes to say that these athletic, you know, these, uh, these schools don't make any money off athletics, uh, which is laughable because, you know, what they're, what, but what they're pointing to is like sort of creative accounting where they'll point to the athletic department bottom line and, and say, see, look, you know, nobody's making a profit or only 12 schools, whatever it is, are making a profit, even though it's a multi-billion dollar endeavor. Well, really, the, the biggest expense that an athletic department has is the cost of scholarships. And where does that money go? That goes from the bank account of the athletic department to the bank account of the school. So the school's not out of nickel uh, for scholarships. Um, they're, they're only out the opportunity cost of having a, a, a different paying student in that seat. And if they could make more money off a paying student being in that seat, they would certainly do it. Uh, this, there's nothing sinister about this business. It, it's, it's, a, it's professional sports, and there's nothing wrong with professional sports. What's wrong is that the NCAA is telling these athletes that you can't have any uh, until you leave here, and you, you can't take anything before you get here. Uh, we get to sell you for whatever we can make off of you, and you, you can't share in any of that. But boy, isn't it great that you get to you get to use these nice facilities, and and we'll make it look like you're getting a deal when we're the ones getting the deal. Jay, when it comes to TV rights and NCAA basketball, do you think the money there has played any sort of role in the current situation we see with money in college hoops? It has played a role because it's the um, it's the it's a lot of the money that the universities are, are, are accepting and pocketing. And that's what I'm talking about, about selling the athletes. Like, that's what the NCAA does. And when I say NCAA, I don't just mean the office in, uh, in Indianapolis. I mean every member institution. Uh, they, they, they do media rights deals and sell their games. They're selling the players. Now, they're selling some other things, too. They're selling their own brand, and the co- they're selling the coaches. But they're compensating the coaches and, and all that. But they're selling the players to television, and and then they they use them as billboards for apparel deals. So you'll have some people say, well, hey, look, the players get free gear. Well, first, the coaches get free gear, too, if you want to look at it that way. But the players are required to wear that gear. It's not like they get a... Uh, a gift certificate to a sporting goods store, and they say, hey, go crazy, enjoy yourself. Hey, Jay, the they coaches also get golf club memberships and cars and and stipends and allowances and sometimes university housing. They get all that. They're allowed whatever they can negotiate, no question. But I'm just kind of saying that, that 
you know, when they point to what the players get, uh, there, there's there's no sort of understanding or acknowledgement of what the what everybody else quote unquote gets or what the university gets because the university's getting uh, no cost labor, you know, sort of expenses only labor, and they're getting players' names and likenesses that they're able to sell for their own benefit without having to share any of it with the players. And so the question about the media rights deals. Like, you know, you made a good point, I think, about the, the chess team at Michigan, but I think it also extends to Division Two and Division Three uh, sports altogether. Like, you don't hear about scandals in Division Two and Division Three, and I don't think the enterprise would be any different if the players were allowed to make money. Um, you could still require them to, to be full-time students. You could still require them to, uh, uh, to go to school because, and this is one thing that I think gets missed, and that is, no other student is is told uh, how much money they can make or whether they can uh, take advantage of their name and likeness in the marketplace and still be full-time students in good standing. It's only an athlete that's told that. Well, if this is really about education and, and, and all that, why wouldn't we tell that to other students, too? You know, music person on a music scholarship can, can uh, cut a record and, uh, you know, appear at concerts and the like. But yet you can't do that if you're an athlete, and and I find that to be a contradiction that is uh, is hard for the NCAA to escape. Well, you know, the ones they're making money off of, they're limiting. The ones they are not can do whatever they want, and I find that to be uh, to be almost disturbing. We've got agents, we've got money, we've got sneaker companies, we've got AAU teams, we've got coaches, we've got athletic directors. The money's going where it's not supposed to. Jay, were you surprised that Louisville moved so quickly to take action against Patino? I mean, the guy's a Hall of Famer, and also the athletic director, Tom Jurich, who's one of the most respected and effective ADs in the country. I'm not. I, I actually called that before it happened. I, I, I expected them to clean house as soon as, as soon as this broke. As soon as I read the complaint, I was actually on television uh, going over it. I knew it was over for everybody there, um, simply because on the heels of the last scandal to have this happen, uh, you know, universities are big corporations, and as you guys know better than I do, uh, one of the big, you know, one of the biggest things that corporations do is they try to get any any hint of scandal off the table as quickly as possible. And uh, and I was a little bit surprised that they didn't act uh, differently last time with regard to the stripper scandal because you know that that would have helped get that off the table. But I think it showed that there was no credible evidence that Patino or Jurich had any any knowledge of that at all. And you had so many people there that found that unimaginable, and, and, and they couldn't find anybody that knew about it aside from those that were directly involved. So uh, I understood that. But, uh, but having two in a row, I, I felt just the PR uh, and, and the way that big corporations work. Uh, that 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 would be the remedy they would they would use. Jay, do you remember a while back there something went on over at Ohio State, and the president of the university, Gordon Gee, was asked if he was going to fire the football coach, and his response was, "No, I hope he doesn't fire me." When do the educators begin to assert themselves and put the core mission of the universities back on the front burner? Well, the presidents have asserted themselves. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many times I've I've heard the presidents are in charge, and I believe that, and that's why things are so screwed up. So you're saying they're siding with the money of college sports? Of course. I mean, your decisions reveal your priorities, and the decisions have been about money, and the priorities are about money. And uh, and look, nobody, hey, 
they could have said no to all these deals. Like the NCAA could could run just like the Masters and Augusta National with that fabulous property they have of the Masters Golf Tournament, where there are no commercials and uh, things are referred to a certain way, and you're going to do things a certain way. They can they can do that. They chose not to. When people talk about nine o'clock games, they'll say, "Why? Why would we have nine o'clock games? Why are these games so late?" Uh, a lot of folks, including NCAA personnel, like to like to point the finger at media and the the, the television companies and say, "Well, you know, it, it's not our call." Well, it's absolutely the NCAA's call as to when these games start. Media companies negotiate uh, media media rights deals. And they're willing to pay a certain amount for a 7 o'clock game because of the ratings, how many people can watch it nationwide. And they're willing to pay more for a 9 o'clock game, uh, a primetime game. And the NCAA, they, all their member institutions, they're saying, no, we'll play at 9. We'll play on Tuesday. Yep, we'll it, play on Sunday night. That was Louisville. Louisville agreed to play on Tuesday. That yeah. was one of the big catalysts to their athletic department success. And all of them are doing it. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not complaining about it. I'm just saying that... that these are all these decisions that they've made. They own the property. They own these games. And by virtue of, of not paying them, they own the players, too. And they sell it. You know, they, all, all, Sonny Vaccaro made a great point the other day, the, the shoe guru that, that a lot of people like to blame for starting all this, but, but he didn't. Um, you know, he, he, he was asked years ago in a night commission meeting by the Penn State president of why should we, why should we, uh, uh, let you pay us all this money, and, do, and he says, "Well, maybe you shouldn't, but you're doing it. You know, and you're gonna you're gonna keep taking it. it, it we're, all we can do is offer it. You're you're making the decision to accept it. And so, while the while the presidents can complain about the shoe companies all they want, you know, they can't they can't plead ignorance to their school signing a hundred and sixty million dollar deal with a shoe company. You know, they, they've all done this." And the NCAA has has they've all been involved. In, they all made they're all really smart people. They all made conscious decisions, per, and they built this business up, this multi billion dollar industry, purposefully and methodically into what it is. And so they can't claim ignorance or somehow you know it's like the bank saying, "God, I can't believe I can't believe where this business is now. It just kind of happened overnight. It didn't happen overnight." There was lobbying done. All these decisions were made by smart people that knew what they were doing. We're talking with Jay Billis, who used to play for Duke University, now an ESPN analyst. And I always joke about being an old man, but it's true because my 26-year-old son reminded me of something. And it was last year we were watching uh, U of M basketball. And I said, yeah, I'm going to watch it on TV. And my son said, oh, Dad, I'm going to watch it by streaming it. And it hit me again. It's like, my goodness, this is how the sport has changed so much, how we watch college sports. Well, everything's changed. I mean, you know, our, our grandparents listened to games on the radio. On the old and, Dumont, yeah. <laughs> yeah, then television came in. Now we have the Internet, and as you were mentioning, streaming. So the delivery system may be changing, but the model's basically the same. And that is the, the NCAA and its member institutions, all the conferences, they own the, they own the properties. They own the content. And they're selling it to media companies. You know, the Big Ten just did a, a multimedia company deal that's similar to, to what the NFL has. And you know, they're they're going from a twenty, you know, over twenty million dollar per school payout annually. They'll be up over forty million, and uh, and that's real money. 
And that doesn't include what their licensing is, their merchandising, and uh, and it doesn't include uh, what they make off of apparel deals, each of their individual schools. So the, the, the system's awash in money. Uh, and so, you know, this is not amateur sports. It is not. And anyone that claims it is, is either not very bright or lying. <laughs> uh, you can't sell stuff for billions of dollars and claim it's amateur. Jay, a couple of minutes left. I want to ask you about the power that the players have that I think they're just starting to learn. We got a glimpse of it with the Missouri football team, threatened not to play. And can you imagine the conversations going on at the president's office, the athletic department, and the networks? They need this content. They must put something on the air. What would happen if one team, two teams, doesn't matter, the final four decides we're not taking the court? What kind of change would that foster? I don't know that, that just doing that would foster that much change unless, it, unless it, it serves as a catalyst for other player protests where they could flex their economic muscle. Uh, I think the initial reaction would be just like that of maybe John Carlos and Tommy Smith or or some of these anthem protests where uh, folks would point at the players and say, oh, you, you know, you spoiled brats. You know, we want to watch the game, and now you won't perform for us for free. Uh, it's amazing how people kind of turn things around and, and misdirect and kind of miss the point. I think what would be a lot more effective for players, and I've said this before, is, you know, it, look, the players have a tough spot because they're transient. They're only there for four or five years, and organizing it would be difficult uh, and they've got a lot of people that would uh, try to discourage them from doing this. Jay Billis, who used to play for Duke University, now he is a TV analyst for ESPN. Thank you so much, Jay. We appreciate it, and uh, thank you for your time. What a pleasure. Always my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Takeaways, Billis, who has been covering this sport for years, just simply had the attitude when we mentioned about the scandal in college basketball. He said, yeah, and... It's like, hey, this has been going on for years, that dirty little secret that's been known for a long time. Yeah, my takeaway is you sometimes see these pockets of, of professors who get together and say that the mission of education has been lost in big-time college sports and that they don't mix anymore. But Jay makes the point that at the highest echelons of the universities, they're complicit in all this because they're taking the money. All the networks can do, all the sneaker companies can do is offer the money. Nobody has to say yes and take it. But they've taken it before, they're taking it now, and they will continue to do so in the future. Who was it that you said that he hoped this was the AD? That was Gordon Gee, the yeah. president of right. Ohio State. Right. During one of the scandals there with the football team, they asked if he was going to fire the football coach. And his response was, no, actually, I hope he doesn't fire me. If that doesn't sum it all up, I don't know what does. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. And now for the number of the week. I'm surprising you this week. The number is 45. I think Donald Trump. <laughs> I don't know what 45 is. Think about Now, I'm going to give you a hint. I, this is obviously we're the business of sports, but this is an age. That's all I'm going to give you right now. 
Oh, just tell me. I have no idea. This this podcast has a time limit, right? They, <laughs> we have, it's like a baseball game. <laughs> yeah, it has let's no go, time. Let's just go forever. <laughs> the Calgary Flames have officially signed 45-year-old. Oh, Yaramir Yager. Yes, to a one-year contract. Five-time NHL scoring champion is second behind Wayne Gretzky in NHL history with 1,914 points on 765 goals and about 1,149 assists. And he didn't miss a game while playing for Florida last season. I'm impressed. He's making a million bucks at 45. He's still doing it. I've seen the guy work out. It's unbelievable. Does he still have the mullet? I mean, that's what I want to know. There's a, <laughs> there's a contingent of fans who wear the mullets, and they travel around to see Yager play. They're great. You know I'm into the hockey. To do this at age 45, night in, night out, is absolutely something to behold. Yager, Yager is <laughs> pretty impressive guy that he can do this. And we're talking about at the highest level in the NHL. And we're not talking now. Gordy Howe, God bless him. I mean, and God rest his soul. He came in for you know, I think like you know, for a few minutes one time. He played uh, with his sons, and right? Played with yeah. his sons, whatever. Yeah. But we're talking about playing on the ice, actual time, three periods going. That's doing something. He's he's scoring points, and the fact that somebody's given him one more season and that he's able to do it, like I said, pretty darn impressive. Yager, you the man. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Mike Labar. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in next week when we speak with the biggest and brightest in the world of sports business. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes. Oh, 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 oh,